Well, there's a bit of extra pressure. That's good. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for asking me to do this. Um, my name's Keith, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, haven't had a drink for 30 years. Um, don't know how much recovery I have. Don't know how much sobriety I have. Um, I was just wondering about uh, what to say, obviously. And I'm just wondering, is there anybody uh, new? And there is anybody not long off the drink? Because it would kind of it would affect what I say here, you know. Most of you all been sober for a while. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, uh, um, I'll maybe I'm not come. Yeah? Sorry, I'm new. Yes? Okay. Once in uh, some days. So, okay. if, uh, yeah, I would like to know about your first days. Okay. Okay. So, I'll maybe say a wee bit more than I was going to say about the end of my drinking and the beginning of sobriety and how I, how I stopped drinking it, just so that's I'll hopefully some use to you, you know. Uh, so, obviously, I have other issues, obviously, apart from being an alcoholic, and there's other things that help set it up, depending on your opinion of whether it's a natural disease or not. I think it probably is. I think I was always going to be an alcoholic. But I definitely have stuff that happened to me, which, um, you know, probably has something to do with it. Uh, so I'll run through that early stage, maybe just uh, very early in life, I had a trauma uh, in a hospital um, where I had an operation on my testicles. I hope that's not triggering for anybody. It's very triggering for me because <laughs> it was a trauma. And uh, that profoundly affected me. That's affected my thinking and my emotions uh, every day of my life ever since and still to this day. Um, my thinking on it is that uh, at that point in life, which was probably, you know, uh, something like five or six years old, you know, I was just beginning to get ashamed of my body the way you naturally do, you know, about your genitals. And then the next thing you know, I was uh, tortured in that area and I could not, I, I could not handle that at all. That was awful. And uh, I was left with the feeling that I, I'd been punished for something and I couldn't figure out why I was being punished because I was being told I was a good boy, and the next thing you know, I was getting tortured, and my my mum abandoned me in a hospital and all that. I just couldn't make any sense of it, and I lost trust, and I became, I suppose, deeply insecure ever since that. I haven't really shifted that. My GP used the term PTSD about three years ago, and that's the first time I heard the term, and I kind of just immediately thought, oh, that's it. Why did nobody say that before? <laughs> that's 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 what's wrong with me, you know? Uh, and uh, maybe one of the worst bits of that was that after the operation was over my mum came into the hospital room and she said um, there you are now that's all right we thought you were going to lose a wee bit of your wee man meaning a testicle uh, but it's all right everything went okay and, but I want, and then she said very confidentially she said to me I want you to promise me that if you ever have pain down there again, you'll tell me. And uh, that was a bad moment. Uh, went on about 30 years, about 30 years later, I was at a conference. Uh, I was in a, an organization with people who con counseled, you know, a counselor. And uh, I was at a big conference over in England. And I'm not sure what the general topic was or what the conference was about. It was either LGBT or else it was men, women or something like that. 
And anyway, this woman got up, and as an aside, she said, uh, very casually, she said, well, speaking as a lesbian, which is to say a person with an impossible decision embedded in their ESM, and then she went on talking, and I thought, what? What the fuck did you just say? Speaking as a person with an impossible decision embedded in their ESM. And I went to see her and I said, can you unpack that, please? And he said, ESM is uh, counselling jargon for early sexual memory. And it's a standard thing that you use when you're counselling people. You, you'd say to me, you know, talk about your earliest memory connected in any way at all with sex. And people come up with really remarkable answers to that, and they get deep insight into themselves to answer that question. And I realized that that operation was my earliest memory in any way connected with sex because of my genitals. And my mum gave me an utterly impossible decision. She said, if you ever have pain down there, I want you to promise me that you'll tell me. And I thought about that with my six-year-old brain, and I thought, well, if I tell her, then I get this again. I get that big needle laying on my back with a guy coming at me. And if I don't tell her, then that means I'm lying and I lose my mother. I'm not with her anymore. And so I made the choice. She's gone. So I didn't have a mum after that moment. She wasn't on my side anymore. She was the person who was going to hand me over to the torture. So that was that. That's what still affects me. And, I, and so I, 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 if you ask me, I identify bisexual, but for very specific reasons. It's not because of who I do or don't have sex with. It's because I don't know what the fuck I am. That's why I call myself bisexual. And I can't make decisions generally. Paralyzed brain. Um, And that left me not really knowing if I was a boy or not. And that, that was a very serious thing because I was trying to be a human being, but the model for being a human being that I was given was boy. That's the version of human being that I was, was a boy. And I clearly wasn't a boy. There was something very badly wrong with the bit of me that was already very bad, you know. So I knew I could never make it as a boy. And that, that just developed, just looking around me, I looked at boys and I realized I wasn't one of them. I couldn't be one of them. So I've also, all my life, I've had uh, gender issues. I don't know what my gender is. Uh, there's been an explosion in ideas around that recently. And I, I can't comment on any of that because I'm old school. You know, I'm, I'm 63 years old. I'm not trans. I don't know what any of those words mean. I've had a lifetime before everybody started talking about it, you know. Uh, so the only description I really own is gender confused. And I just leave it at that. I, I don't know what the fuck I am. I don't know how to make it. I don't know how to qualify. So um and so I was I was on the road to being depressed, I suppose, and a failure, another failure. So my dad was always criticizing me, he was always disappointed. So this was a bad start, you know, and and uh and uh I, uh, well, given that Tom's asked me to do this, I want to talk about music because music was the one good, really good thing. And um, so I'm a musician and I'm, I'm proud to be a musician. I'm proud to be part of the family of musicians. And uh, it's very important to me um, for lots of different reasons. 
I'm quite intellectual about my music, and that's kind of where I go to hide. I hide in my mind. And um, probably quite egotistical and quite um, intellectually arrogant about music. All those things, they're kind of not good, but they're good for me. They're good for me in a way. Uh, and how that works is at the age of four or so, or five, I don't know, at some age around then, maybe a bit later, I got music lessons, I got piano lessons. The reason why I got piano lessons was because my sister, Cynthia, who's at this meeting, she got piano lessons. And so I had to get piano lessons. I'm sorry to say Cynthia's a few years older than me. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, so she got piano lessons. So I had to get piano lessons. And then the the music teacher, the piano teacher, did a thing which was pretty clever, and and I do it now myself. I teach wee kids piano, and I do this as well now. In my hearing, as I was sitting there, she said, "My piano teacher said to my mom, uh, Keith's very good at the piano. He has a very good touch, which is a, you know a very clever thing to do because it was said." in confidence to my mum, but I was obviously sitting listening to it. So it was a fantastic ego boost. And that's what I really needed at that point, you know. As an utter failure as a human being, not making it in any terms at all, I heard that I was good at the piano, which, you know, may or may not have been true, but that's what she said. And I do it too. I, every child that I have, I tell the mums so that the kid can hear, Jimmy's very good on the piano. And uh, that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, it gave me a way out of the worst possible scenario because I realized at that point <laughs> that it turns out I'm not subhuman. I'm actually superhuman. Now, obviously I couldn't have terms I got when I was five or something, but that's what I decided. I went off to live in my head and realized that I the reason why I, I seemed like a compete failure as a human being or a child or well human being I thought boy uh was because I was <laughs> I was like Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and later on Jelly Roll Morton <laughs> and Miles Davis <laughs> and uh, we are sublime you know <laughs> we are pretty special and uh well that's it. They talk about ego and AA, don't they? And as I understood my early meetings, ego didn't mean thinking you're the best. It was always just thinking you're the worst or the best, but no concept of just being a person among people. So for me then, it was slightly better to be absolutely supreme and much better to everybody else than just a non-starter. Anyway, I'll try and rush on a bit. Uh, I, I, I got acquainted with depression very early on in, in my teens, um, I saw pictures of Auschwitz on TV and uh, it hit me hard and I weirdly took it personally. I, I took it on uh, and I remember saying, I must remember never to laugh or smile again after I saw those things. And I feel me 11 plus, all reinforcing the failure. And then um, I left school at 16, very little exams and I went to work in the factory. My dad took me, took me to work in the factory that he worked in and uh, absolutely hated it because it was very macho. There's no women anywhere. And I don't know if people know very much about Northern Ireland, but there was no 
there was no Roman Catholics either. It was 100%, just about, it was about 96% Protestant. And uh, so it was kind of brutal, you know, um, and uh, did not suit me at all because, you know, I secretly thought I might possibly be a woman. I'm not sure. And here I was. But music again saved me. Uh, I think the second day in the Apprentice Training Centre, a guy came up and he played drums. He said, somebody said, you play piano, come and join the band. And so I joined the band at the age of 16. And, you know, in our own terms, artistically speaking, we did okay. We ended up playing in front of 2,000 people and played support of some big bands and stuff. And in that band, I met a guy who introduced me to alcohol. And I um, that was a spiritual awakening. Just the lights came back on and I was okay. And I felt okay. And I got drunk. And I got drunk the following night. And I got drunk the night after that. And I wanted to get drunk every single day. And I did my best to get drunk every single day from then on. And I drank alcoholically from the very first drunk um, and it, it was a lot of fun and it was good it, it, it was uh, it, it was a drug for me you know it really helped but I still had all my underlying stuff and I had my deep 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 shame about sexuality and uh, gender and stuff like very very ashamed and very very confused uh, putting on a brave face but just knowing that I, I if anybody knew what I was like inside they would hit and despise me so I worked out what to do about that somehow I became a Christian at the age of 20 I got born again bear in mind this is all very Protestant talk um got born again fell in love with John Calvin and Martin Luther uh, and I loved the theology I don't think I ever loved Jesus. I don't think I ever really even believed in God, but I really, really believed in John Calvin and Protestant theology because it, it was just perfect for me. It really, really made a lot of things okay that weren't okay before that. So there I was at 20 and I was a virgin. And it turns out that being a virgin is the correct thing to be. It turns out you go to heaven if you do that sort of thing. So suddenly this curse became an absolute blessing. And I, once again, I was superhuman. I was uh, going to heaven. I wasn't just feeling among the lads. I was actually going to heaven. And so I gripped that with two hands and I continued drinking. So I was a holy drunk for a couple of years. And um, that kind of worked for me because, you know, I was special in every case. I was a Christian, but I wasn't just a Christian. I was a special Christian. I was a drunk Christian, you know, and I wasn't just a drunk. I was a religious drunk. So it worked well. And the band was doing okay, working in the factory, but I never did a day's work. I was always out over the wall. I got myself into the worst possible squad in the factory with all the drinkers. We were all thoroughly alcoholic, and we were just over the wall the whole time. Used to go and drink with the coal men. Used to work Saturday and Sunday overtime, drank the whole time. Never did any work at all. And, uh, and then... I was going to church a lot, and I had these wee memories. I remember going to a Bible study, and I just looked this up earlier on because it just came back into my head. Was that the Bible? I, I became a bit of a hero in the church with the young people who all wanted to party and they didn't want to be like their elders in the church. 
And we're, we're studying the Bible, and we started studying, and I brought up Proverbs 31, which I discovered. And here's what it says. I'm going to read this out to you. So this is the Bible being read out at a secular meeting. That must be a first. It says <laughs> herein, it is written herein, in Proverbs 31. Uh, it is not for kings, O Lamiel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Right? Give strong drink unto him who is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let them drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So for those who maybe think that AI should be based on Christian religion, that's an important verse. If you're depressed, take a fucking drink. It says in the Bible. And I loved that. <laughs> My God, I loved reading that. And I read that out and all the kids practically stood up and followed me out of the church. <laughs> Let's go to the pub. And I remember the elder who was leading the Bible study. He said, it doesn't mean wine like that. It means non-alcoholic wine. I said, fuck off. How could you drink, forget your troubles if it's non-alcoholic wine, for God's sake? The whole point. The whole point. And it says strong drink as well. But anyway, I I thought about that a bit. And I thought, well, am I really ready to perish? Am I nigh on to death? I'm just a bit depressed, you know, I'm a bit, actually a bit pissed off. And so I came to the decision that I should actually stop drinking and I couldn't keep up this anymore and be a Christian as I was pretending to be. And I was pretending, you know. So I stopped drinking. This is about 1984. And I just stopped drinking. And I, and all hell broke loose. I, I was absolutely suicidal within a matter of days. And I went on antidepressants and I spent 10 months or 11 months without alcohol not knowing I was alcoholic and just, you know, white knuckles. And it was awful. You know, I was just suicidal. So I remember my mum shouting at me, how dare you talk about killing yourself? I wanted to kill myself. And uh, towards the end of that, in December of 1984, Christmas, a friend I went to church with, and he was a bit pissed off as well. We bought a bottle of wine and we said, ah, oh, fuck it. Fuck it. Um, and we drank a bottle of wine. And it was, once again, a spiritual awakening. It was very clear to me that this was the way to go. And um, I decided that I must never let the alcohol in my system get so low that reality gets in again. It was a very clear decision. And I watched my friend, and I saw that he wasn't getting it. He, he did, For him, it was just a drink. It was just a big fuck it. But for me, it was heaven, just heaven to be drunk. And I decided I will stay drunk. And I did. I stayed drunk for over eight years. And I drifted away from religion. And I decided to deprogram myself. And I learned to swear. I learned to say, Jesus, fuck. Jesus, fuck. Jesus, fuck. So I wouldn't be religious anymore. My religion is alcohol all the way. My salvation. Wonderful. And then, of course, you know, it stopped working. And I hit the bottom. So I'm sorry. I should have got to this sooner. But uh, um, 
my bottom was, uh, I realized I wasn't as clever as I thought I was, and I realized that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Uh, by this time, I'd left work and I'd gone to study philosophy. That's another thing I did just in those drinking years after that year. Coming home from church one night, I went into the pub and, and they did a lock-in, and I was sitting in the pub at about 2 o'clock drinking whiskey. And I decided... Uh, I don't want to work in the factory anymore. I want to be a philosopher because the theology kind of led me into philosophy and I, I like reading philosophy. And I decided that I'm going to be a doctor of philosophy. This is a very little in the way of education. I don't have an initial level. Um, and I just I just did that. Uh, it was a drunken decision. It was a fantastic drunken decision. And I it took me a year, but I, I left. After 10 years in the factory, I left. And I went to Queen's to study philosophy as an undergraduate. And I just went right through and got a PhD. It took nine years and I got a PhD. But I stopped drinking in the middle of that. So that's, that's where the bottom came, you know. Uh, I was on a great time at university because obviously I didn't even have to go over the wall from work running. I just drank all the time, didn't really go to lectures. and uh, But loved philosophy enough to get, to get through it, you know. Um, and um, my bottom was, I realized that while I could invent fantastic sentences, I wrote my doctoral thesis on the philosophy of mind. And I could write fantastic sentences and occasionally I could get a paragraph together. But at the time at dawn, I was smoking 80 cigarettes a day, eating cream buns, clementine oranges, Guinness and whiskey. And uh, I just lost it. You know, I lost it. Very angry, very depressed. And... Uh, I just went to my tutor and said, I can't, I have to pack the PhD and can't do it. I can't actually write anymore. And he said, oh, well, that's okay. I'm a bit worried about my drinking myself. <laughs> he said, Don't, I'll not tell anybody, just you carry on. We'll see how it goes. I'll not tell anybody you packed it in. And that was very good of him. I did that. And uh, I saw somebody shot, be in Northern Ireland, obviously. I was in a pub and there was a woman who taught at university. She was the the boys came in and they shot her in the head. And uh, I was there with my drinking buddies and I watched her hit the ground and watched the big circle of blood coming out around her head. And my mate, who'd seen somebody shot the week earlier, he he started shaking and the, the barman gave him a whiskey. And I said, uh, oh, can I have one? Can I have one too? <laughs> and that's all I was thinking about. Oh, God, I got a free whiskey. It's great. And uh, I went on that night and did a gig and forgot to mention to anybody that I saw somebody shot dead. And it slowly dawned on me, I think it was the next day, I thought, wait a minute, what happened? What? What? You're supposed to be affected by that? What the fuck? I wasn't in shock, I just was more interested in the free drink, it was more interesting to me. And I used to be a Samaritan volunteer around that time. And I, I went in to do the Samaritans all night after a, a night uh, doing a, a pub crawl. And I said to the guy, <laughs> we were in to be answer the phones, suicidal people, for eight hours or something. I walked in and I, I don't know, had a load of pints on. And I said to him, there's no good pubs in Belfast anymore. And he said, I wouldn't know. I'm an alcoholic. I go to AA. <laughs> and uh, I thought, Fuck, what am I going to talk about all night? 
And that was him. That was him doing his 12 step. You know, that's all he said. And uh, Philip Kramer. A girl phoned up and said she was worried about her drinking. She was found suicidal. And I said, sure, don't worry about it. Just have another drink. And around that time, my sister, sorry, Tom, I feel that tearful, you know. Um, my sister, who was a big drinking buddy, she went, eh, and uh, I hated her, you know, well, I didn't I'd not hate her, but I was very annoyed. and. I tried to talk to her about why she wasn't coming for a drink anymore. And she kept talking shit. She kept talking about things people were telling her in AA. And one afternoon I was sitting in a hotel and I had a pint of Guinness and I had about one inch left. And everybody kept coming in on my mate and kept saying, one drink and said, no, I'm okay with this. And I sat for about three hours with an inch of Guinness. And I phoned, I phoned Cynthia up and I said, okay, I'll go to one of your meetings. And she said, oh, will you now? Tell you what, you phone me back tomorrow. Well, Cynthia can tell you the story from her side, but uh, apparently it was somebody with a guy called uh, Ronnie. And he was basically educating something on how to save me, which was uh, rub his face in the ground. And that's what it took. One next day, I said, please, please take your earbuds. Sorry, Tom, I embarrassed myself here. And I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And some people said they'd never seen anybody's near brain damage. I, I just been so drunk for so long. I just had a big, bigger head. And, uh, I was bollocks. I couldn't get a sentence out. So for me, uh, for me, I don't know, the emotional or the mental bottom was so kind of bad. I, I've never had to go back out again and try it again. Uh, uh, it's always been enough for me just hearing other people tell the story, but it's like having a drink and I don't have. To. 
I, I, whatever, I just heard enough from the meetings at the very beginning. And uh, I did about 10 meetings a week, which was about all you could find, really. I went to every single meeting I could find. And I just sat in there and I saw I did. And I dumped about 400 friends. Dumped them. And uh, I just continued to be depressed and all the other confusions kept going on. But I took drink out of the equation completely. And uh, I know you're not supposed to say it, but I, I, I can't really see myself ever having a drink again, you know, really. I know it's not at a time and all that. Uh, recovery's been very slow, you know, it took me, oh, I don't know. I got my PhD in the end, I got back to that. I got enough of my brain power back and I went and actually did a very scary thing. A year or two after I was sober, I went and gave a talk to the Irish Philosophical Society, which is all the retired professors and all the rest of it. And I absolutely crapped myself. But I did it and I got my PhD and all that. And then I taught philosophy and so on. And uh, I also stopped playing music, Tom. That was over, gone. But I've got that back to you. Pick up jazz and, uh, you know, playing cafes and things like that. Got my music back. And uh, today, I'm a bit of a low ebb at the minute. I've had stuff going on and my anger is really up. I've blown up, I've had a big meltdown at a few meetings, extremely angry. And I suppose it's just the same old stuff. It's just uh, feeling like a failure. And not really knowing. There's a thing that annoys me and they talk about, you know, be authentic and be yourself. That's okay if you know who you are. When you don't even know whether you're male or female, it's quite hard to be yourself. You know, um, I was probably a lot better 20 years ago when I was doing the counseling and had a much better outlook and I had much more of a hippie mentality. I was better back then. I think lockdown really fucked me because the method, part of my sobriety is just getting out of the house and being with other people and not be able to do that. I'm still coming back from that, you know. Started doing these Zoom meetings around about the end 2020 or so, been away for a while and back again. Um, is that enough, Tom? I don't have any big profound <laughs> punchlines here at all, you know. <laughs> Go on for as long as you like, Keith. Okay. I mean, you're doing fabulous. Well, uh, if anybody's identifying with anything, feel free to share about anything I've said. I won't consider it to be cross-talk, you know, or cross-sharing. Um, I wish you could say more about the recovery time. I I don't know. AA is important. There's a long period I didn't do any meetings at all, but I always had my sister, Cynthia. So even if it wasn't any more than once a fortnight or once a month sometimes, Cynthia and I are opposites in some ways my philosophical thinking, I'm metaphysical. She's a scientist. I'm a bit spooky. <laughs> I hope, hopefully not irrational, but uh, definitely artistic temperament. Uh, but at the same time, 
were both alcoholic up to the hilt, you know. So it's a constant AA meeting with something anyway, in the best possible way, you know. And there's there's nothing we need to say about that, to be honest. We just, we just get it. And there are other people here. I know the way they talk about drink. I know they know what I'm talking about. And that's why I'm here. Well, do me, Tom. Thanks for asking me. It's very important to do this for me. Thank you.